0: Portland, 90.7 FM and KBOO.FM online. Welcome to Sprouts, Radio from the Grassroots, a weekly program that showcases radio production by independent community media. We bring local stories to a global audience produced at a different location every week.
1: The majority of all human viruses were all zoonotic they transfer from an animal over to a human we as human beings circulate coronaviruses pretty readily with one another and our immune system is somewhat acclimated to those coronaviruses but what's unique about this one is that it hasn't circulated amongst human beings because we're seeing this one happen in in real time and it's going to take some time for our immune system to become acclimated to it probably five to ten years before it just becomes one of the common colds.
0: I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Radio Network, and for the next half hour, we're going to talk coronavirus. Mark Allendary, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans, will share information with us about the nova coronavirus COVID-19, what it really is, how it will likely affect our lives, and he'll share some valuable information about things you can do and think about as the virus approaches your community. Here's Mark Allen.
1: Hello, my name is Dr. Mark Allen-Derry. I'm an infectious diseases doctor with Access Health of Louisiana, which is a federally qualified healthcare clinic in the state of Louisiana. And I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana.
0: And you're with a community radio station as well, right?
1: That's right, I'm the founder of the community radio station 102.3 LP. I'm an infectious diseases doctor, so I got to actually name the station. I got to use the letters H and I and V as a surrogate for all things human rights and social justice. And our radio station is dedicated to human rights and social justice.
0: You actually have worked all over the world in your area of expertise dealing with other pandemics and epidemics?
1: That's right. I have worked through Africa looking at other viral pandemics. In the past, we investigated the Lhasa fever virus in Guinea, their quarry, and after that, the Hunter virus epidemic that was on the Navajo reservation. And then most recently, the Ebola epidemic in uh, 2014, 2015, I was working for the World Health Organization, certainly in Katrina and, and in Haiti. I was uh, on the ground a couple of days after the earthquake in Haiti and kind of remained there for a couple of weeks.
0: And now we have this new coronavirus. In your experience, what do you see us looking at compared to what you've worked on with other infectious diseases?
1: Let me just take a step back and explain. The common cold that we all get, every year. 10% of those circulating viruses are coronaviruses. Uh, So I'm I'm 51 and, and assuming I get a common cold every year, it stands to reason that over the course of five decades, one of my common colds was likely to be due to a coronavirus. So this coronavirus, this is a novel virus. It has origins in an animal, which is called a zoonosis. In fact, The majority of all human viruses were all transferred over from an animal over to a human. But what's unique about this one, because we're seeing this one happen in in real time, is that because it hasn't circulated amongst human beings, it's going to take probably five to ten years before it just becomes one of the common colds that we see. And it's going to take some time for our immune system to get used to it, if you will, or become acclimated to it. And so what we're seeing is that people with weakened immune systems, elderly or immunocompromising illnesses, so HIV or hepatitis C, diabetes, obesity, other chronic illnesses, smokers, and in the past we've seen pregnant women also be vulnerable to some of these viral epidemics. So what we're seeing here is a very, very, very transmissible virus for it. You know, we don't know what this one is is looking like. And fortunately, when a virus is very infectious, it moves from person to person pretty easy. It tends to be less virulent. In other words, it tends to be less dangerous. Viruses that are more dangerous, fortunately, tend to be less transmissible. And so that's what we're seeing here with this virus is we're seeing a very, very, very contagious virus. It moves amongst people very, very readily. However, it has a very low mortality rate. Now, the U.S. mortality rate right now, as we record this on the 10th, I think, of March, the mortality rate is around 5.7. And that's a pretty high mortality rate compared to what the WHO's mortality rate, uh, what they estimate at 3.4, versus what South Korea's mortality rate, which is 0.5. I will bring our attention to South Korea and what an amazing job South Korea is doing. I'm going to hang my hat with the South Koreans because they have done the most amount of testing, 10,000 a day, and they have something like 200,000 tests that they have performed at this point. Their mortality rate is so low because the denominator, when they, they are looking at how these rates work, which is essentially the number of people who died over the total number of people with the illness. The reason why our mortality rates are so high here in the U.S. is that we just don't have enough tests And this is the major reason why our mortality rates are a lot higher. Um, And also here in the US, I'm just not 100% sure that at this point, there is the sort of readiness that a large country like ours, that is somewhat takes pride in its individualism where quarantining folks is going to be quite difficult. So I think at this point, it's fair to tell people it's likely that there's going to be some disruption. The daily life uh, interactions, uh, engagements, employments, and that sort of stuff that we engage in on a regular basis is going to probably be changed in our daily lives. As I'm reading the news here in New Orleans, we had a big Patrick's Day parade planned for this weekend, and that just was canceled. Yesterday on my radio program, we had on a representative from the New Orleans Women's and Children's Shelter. And they were recognizing that this could be particularly an issue because it's likely that there is going to be an uptick in people becoming homeless as a result of of this virus so this is what happens when epidemics occur this has happened thousands of times over the history of humanity and this is just something that's par for the course it's just that we haven't seen one of these in so long in fact the last big pandemic that we had was in 1918, which was the uh, great influenza pandemic, which, according to estimates, killed 50 to 100 million people on the globe. I, you know, I don't think that we're going to see that large of a, of a mortality rate. Certainly in those days, they didn't even know what a virus was. So certainly I think we're going to do a lot better than uh, in 1918. But I think that it's fair for people to recognize that they should be prepared. Preparation in the form of very, very, very solid hand-washing skills, soap and water, 20 seconds. Hand sanitizers should have 60 to 90 percent alcohol content in it. I'm personally recommending folks to have oral thermometers at home and that we all need to come to a common definition of a fever, which is 100.4, that's 100.4, so anything above 100.4 or 38 degrees celsius and then lastly to make sure that you're stocked up on on your medications your prescriptions and then also for 80 percent of the population this is a common cold it feels like a cold so have uh, cough and cold medicines around the house because once coughing starts you definitely want to have some sort of cough suppressant on hand. Um, if you do feel like you have the virus and you do have a doctor or a hospital to call, the first thing they're going to ask you is what your temperature is. So make sure you have that oral thermometer on hand. What do you, what do we do in the setting of somebody who, you know, has a fever, has a cough, and a little bit of shortness of breath, but doesn't really necessarily need to be in the hospital? Should they go to their doctor? Is getting a positive test more important or is making sure somebody stays home and not exposing anybody, which is more important. And of course, we're not getting any recommendations, unfortunately, from the CDC, because I'm afraid I think the CDC is somewhat limited in in what they can talk about, given how communication needs to go through the vice president's office. So, you know, my personal recommendation to people is that if you are feeling sick, you have a fever, you have a cough, a little bit shortness of breath, but you're not you know, you're not sick, sick. Stay home, self-quarantine. self-quarantine.
0: What exactly is a self-quarantine?
1: So, the, so that's a great question. I don't know if there's an actual, that, that is a term that is fairly new. Uh, at least I've never heard it before. And if I have, I've never really thought about it. But that just basically means you're voluntarily staying at home essentially for 14 days with very limited contact with anybody. You know, when I came back home from being in Sierra Leone, I was in quarantine for 21 days, and, and I was having the state health department coming on, checking on me. They had to visually look at me twice a day, and they were taking my temperature twice a day to make sure that I didn't have, a, uh, I wasn't coming home with Ebola.
0: And when you're in this quarantine, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting to find out if you're sick? Or are you waiting for it to, for the virus to come and go, or?
1: All the above. Essentially, what you're trying to do is you're trying to remove the potential of transmitting this virus to another individual, essentially. And I think we're going to learn more about this. And again, we're going to get a lot of information coming out of South Korea really, really soon.
0: And how exactly do you give it to somebody else?
1: So it's transmitted through uh, what are called respiratory droplets. So it's really through breathing, uh, coughing, sneezing, and or these respiratory droplets. On a table, on, on a desk, you know, on a shopping cart in a supermarket. And what's a respiratory what's, um, droplet? Saliva, spit. But there sometimes can be very microscopic. And the virus can kind of live in that respiratory droplet. So it could be transferred, you know, transmitted about upwards of possibly three to six feet with a sneeze or a cough, or it could kind of catch a little bit of a wind and travel for, you know, a a, a yard or two. And this brings up this idea of surgical mass. And surgical mass, the size of this virus is about 0.1 micron. And just to give that size context, the human hair is 75 microns. So when you look at a surgical mask, not the N99s or the N95s, those are the masks that you see doctors and nurses wearing in the hospitals, but the surgical masks, the ones that are very, very common that you see all around that were essentially created so that surgeons did not sneeze cough into their surgical site that they were working over. But the stitching on a surgical mask is like the equivalent of a chain link fence trying to hold back. Uh, flooding waters uh, rushing through. So that's how small the virus is uh, in comparison to what that stitching on that mask look like. So masks are not necessarily helpful. Um, if you If you twist my arm, I could say, well, you know maybe maybe masks could potentially be helpful and possibly preventing you from touching your face or touching your nose or or what have you. But these respiratory droplets can either be inhaled through the mouth and the nose, and then they get into the lungs. Or if it's on the table, if somebody's talking and coughing uh, on a table, let's say, and then a few minutes later, somebody else walks in and puts their hand on their their table, and then they touch their mouth uh, or their eyes or their nose or, you know, or what have you on their face, then that is a portal of entry for a virus that ultimately is going to make its way down into the lungs. And it's in the lungs that causes these, these little pockets of of viral pneumonia Um, and so so that's how people are ultimately uh, getting this virus.
0: So the virus ultimately leads to some form of pneumonia?
1: The virus ultimately leads to some form of pneumonia and for people that are older and for people who are vulnerable, immunosuppressed, uh, you know chronic medical conditions, diabetes, Smokers, uh, this sort of stuff. Um, it can lead to a uh, um, that viral pneumonia can trigger this inflammatory response. that's so called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is known uh, as ARDS. It's acute respiratory distress syndrome. And, uh, I'm going to say ARDS, but people call it ARDS as well. So in the setting of ARDS, what happens <clears throat> is that the the the, the lungs kick up this very intense inflammatory response and uh, it, with inflammation comes fluid. Think about like if you sprain your ankle like playing basketball or if you trip and fall and your ankle's swollen, that swelling uh, is is fluid in, in, in your ankle. Let's say and that, that redness um, is from that inflammation that you get. Well, that same thing happens in your lungs. And when that happens in your lungs, what typically happens is... Um, You can't engage in the process of ventilation, so that's uh, getting rid of the CO2 that's been accumulated in the blood, and then oxygenation, which is trying to bring in new fresh oxygen into the blood so that the cells can be oxygenated. That process is blunted with all that inflammatory fluid that's sitting in the lungs. And in some people, that could be very, very intense. And so this is one of the mechanisms by which we're seeing people pass away with uh, this this coronavirus.
0: You're listening to Sprouts Radio from the Grassroots, a weekly program bringing you local radio productions of global interest. I'm Ursula Rudenberg, and I'm speaking with Mark Allen-Derry, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans, sharing information about the nova coronavirus COVID-19, what it really is, How is likely to affect our lives, and ways you can think about it and things you can do. Can I go back just for a minute to the explanation of the virus itself? You were saying that this is a new virus and that's part of the reason why we don't have a natural resistance to it yet.
1: Immunity. And so just to be very clear, viruses become resistant, we become immune.
0: Are you saying that it's new to humans and it existed before in animals? Or are you saying that actually a new virus was created in the process of it moving from an animal to humans, in a sense changed and became something completely different than what the animals had?
1: That's a great question. So so is it a new virus? Absolutely not. This is a virus of which has been circulating amongst bats for a long time. They were very, very clear on. In fact, I, I, I don't know how, how better, more emphatically, I can say this virus started in bats. There probably was an intermediate host, and now it's in humans. So, is it a new virus? No, it's not a new virus. But to get to the technical answer to your question, Ursula, when it comes into humans, technically it is a new virus, right? Because now it's no longer circulating in an intermediate host, or so it's not circulating amongst bats anymore. Fruit bats. It's now circulating amongst humans. And then once it starts circulating amongst humans, it's going to evolve because it's evolving to a human immune system. So technically, it is going to change. It's still going to be a coronavirus, but technically speaking, it becomes a new virus just because it has a new host.
0: The virus, because it is adapting like that, it seems like it's a living entity because it's it's changing. Do you see the virus as something that's alive or is it something that has a different definition?
1: That again is another excellent question. viruses are not necessarily alive by the way biologists define life, right? So in that you have an organism, it takes in some entity for energy and then it processes it and then it expels it in one way or another and then it has some sort of reproductive capabilities. Viruses don't do that at all. Viruses exist, they get into the human genome, they take over the human genome's DNA processing and cellular machinery to create new parts for itself and it replicates itself like a machine you would grab a part here, a part here, a part here, and the virus is able to do that, and then it gets kicked out of that cell and goes and infects another cell. So it's not really something that we refer to as life, like you would refer to a human being or a single cell organism or a fungus. So it's hard to answer that question. So what they were able to do was a lot of really fascinating technology that is going to get us to vaccines very, very soon something to watch out for. When the president was making these comments that vaccines would be ready in about three months or so, what he was mistaking was that while, yes, they were able to generate a vaccine, or what they're doing is they're able to generate a vaccine by essentially figuring out where the antigens, the the parts of the virus that are going to trigger the immune system. So they'll probably get that done in about three months or so. They're right. I mean, some of these new technologies are able to even do it even sooner through these really amazing new techniques that are being generated as we speak. The problem is is that you have to test these vaccines for safety. So we're another possibly two years out from having a vaccine.
0: You've given us a lot of information about just how to think about it. Should people be worried about going to hospitals?
1: That's a great question. And then at at this point, if you are acutely ill, please go to a hospital. If you feel like you have a little bit of a fever and a little bit of a cough and you just feel like this is a cold, the hospital is not a good place for you. I mean, they're going to bring you in because that's what we do. Nobody gets turned away. But if you have a cold or flu-like illness and you feel like you could do well by yourself, It doesn't matter whether or not you need to get a test or not. As long as you're doing okay, fevers are the body's way of just basically cooking a little bit. So as to make it as an inhospitable environment for a microorganism. But if you're feeling acutely ill where you're just not able to breathe or can't break a fever or certainly fevers lead to seizures, no, 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 you need to be going to the hospital immediately.
0: Okay, so then I want to have a strong immune system as a preventative measure, what comes to your mind first?
1: First of all, vitamin C, uh uh-uh, that's not a thing. These immune boosters, that's not a thing. But there are some things that are really interesting. So sleeping, there's some data to suggest that sleeping and probably why when people are sick they sleep, your immune system tends to be more efficacious when you're sleeping. So, Go ahead, go to sleep. There's also data to suggest that vitamin D may be particularly helpful. We don't know at what dose, but vitamin D. And there's some really interesting information that dates back to 2010. That I'm seeing. There's some data to suggest that zinc may have an effect on just coronaviruses whole. But the way that the, the scientists got zinc in, into the cells was they used these little molecular tricks that just work and attest to, but don't necessarily work uh, with humans. So if you just eat a normal diet, you will get enough vitamin C. There's no such thing as mega dosing on vitamin C. Vitamins don't really help at all. Don't buy anything that's like, immuno boosting or whatever, that doesn't really help. The real thing more than anything else is prevention. Hand-washing, 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 and staying away from large events. Again, I feel they're all going to be canceled anyway. Civic leaders are going to start, they're all watching one another. And I have a feeling that people are going to just be staying home, mostly, and that's a preventative tool.
0: So I'm curious, should I be shaking people's hands anymore? Should I cancel my travel plans? Should I not go to public events? Should I go to restaurants? There's kind of a search going on right now for where are the boundaries here. What, what would you say?
1: First, I'm going to say tongue-in-cheek. Um, I've been waiting my whole career... 20 years now so that I could just engage in elbow bumps and not shake hands anymore. <laughs> so that's from an infectious diseases doctor's perspective. So I've stopped shaking hands uh, completely. And, and again, take it from somebody who has done these epidemics for a long time. Elbow bumping has been something that ID doctors have been doing for a long time because, it you know, there is something when I was in uh, Sierra Leone. Freetown with the WHO during the Ebola epidemic, that was a no-touch, there was not even elbow bump culture, and, and as human beings, it's pretty remarkable that, like, I, you know, after a couple of days, after a week or so, not, not engaging in just a, a handshake or a, a hug or what have you, just any sort of human interaction was, was pretty remarkable. So the, the elbow bumping actually works pretty well, and there's actually been some good science, some good studies that have shown that the most transmission that happens between two people, in terms of touching, happens between handshakes, and then farther down the list uh, is fist bumping, and then further down the list after that is, is elbow bumping. So I've been kind of greeting people with elbow bumping, and that's pretty. we're seeing that pretty commonly here in New Orleans. In terms of going to restaurants, I've been told that coffee shops in Seattle are slowly kind of becoming empty restaurant owner friends of mine have been calling me and asking me about stuff and i suspect that we're going to probably start seeing less folks going outside and this circles back to this conversation of what we were saying about self-quarantining that you're going to start seeing people spend a little bit more time indoors. And I think that this idea of people staying indoors is not a bad thing to do. I would definitely consider limiting non-essential travel. At this point, I would say it's probably not a good idea unless it's absolutely urgent. Try to focus on staying in one place at this point. And again, when I talk about people's lives being somewhat changed and or limited, this is certainly an example of what I mean by that.
0: People are pretty upset about this. They're frightened by it. Do you feel creeped out by this?
1: Not at all. I grew up in Los Angeles when I was a little boy. My, my father, he was optometrist to the stars, and I had started this early fascination with infectious diseases, even as a, as a young person. And I've been around infectious diseases my whole life. And so, for example, when I was four months in Sierra Leone, so I was going into the communities, finding where the cases of Ebola were, finding how it was transmitted, mostly through funerals, finding out who was at the funerals, and then doing contact tracing. And I never wore gloves or gowns or masks or anything. So I was never really afraid when I walked into city. And I walked into some situations where all families were all splayed out on the floor, all sick with Ebola. You just don't touch anything. And then if I ever did touch anything, I'd always have gloves on me. So I'm not necessarily driven by fear because I recognize how these things transmit. Now that's me, I'm an infectious diseases doctor when i was a boy in los angeles i just was struck by the fact that a virus was able to interact with a certain population right the young person i was fascinated with how diseases move through very particular populations so that was my initial fascination and of course that led to the understanding of a a field of science called epidemiology and epidemiology is essentially the study of infections but what I will say is that infectious diseases are diseases of the poor. And when we're talking about poverty, what we're really talking about are human rights and social, social justice issues, right? And so recognizing that certainly in the 80s, a little less so today, certainly a lot better than it was in the 80s when the president didn't even mention the words HIV until 1988, you were looking at very vulnerable populations, right, men who have sex with men. Uh, you were looking at uh, IV drug users, you were looking at Haitians, so there was strong racial issues uh, as well. But it wasn't until it hit the hemophiliac population that things changed. That's when you started to see politicians or what have you uh, start to kind of acknowledge HIV because again it wasn't in the K population or the Haitian population or the, the drug-using population, right? Then ultimately studying, you know, the interactions of poverty with infectious diseases is something that I um, built my career on, quite frankly. So, um, ultimately, I started the radio station as a result of that. I named it WHIV. If I could have named it W Social Justice Radio, I would have, but I had three letters to choose from. And like my wife says, if you give the man three letters, he'll rearrange them to form H and I and V. And again, it's just a surrogate for all things human rights and, and social justice. You know, and it wasn't until I was growing up that, again, I recognized that poverty is not a human condition. Poverty is an imposed condition. Poverty is just discrimination codified into law. Uh, I could tell you, living in the Deep South, Jim Crow is the best example uh, of that, and, and reversing... Uh, poverty is something that would go so far into eliminating uh, infectious diseases as well as eliminating human suffering or significantly reducing human suffering at least but it would go very very far in helping to uh, reduce the number of, of infectious diseases that we're seeing and also let me just add one more thing or so and let me add a climate change element to what we're seeing as well as we start seeing further encroachments of the let's say the amazon rainforest right um, we're seeing these policies by uh, Bolsonaro allowing the rainforest there to be encroached upon. or In some parts of Africa, that's what happened with the Ebola epidemic. It was a little boy who went further and further into the forest until uh, he interacted with the Ebola virus through, I think it was, a, it was a piece of fruit that he found lying on the ground. As more and more humans are encroaching upon these ecological niches, these, these uh, areas where animals have never really interacted with humans before, we're going to start to see more of these viral transmission, or as these vectors of illnesses, mosquitoes, ticks this sort of stuff, as it starts getting warmer, you're going to start to see some of these illnesses that live in the Southern Hemisphere, or isolated or they're unique to the Southern Hemisphere. As it starts to warm, I think that with climate change, we're going to start seeing some of these new infectious diseases we haven't seen here in the U.S., and I think that we're going to probably start seeing more of them as well.
0: Thank you so much, Mark Allen. You, I'm sure a lot of people want your time right now. Is there a website that you would recommend for good information?
1: Two websites that I would recommend are the CDC and the WHO, and then the state health department that you live in. Please go to their website as well. It is a wealth of information on there. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. That's it for Sprouts. We've been listening to information shared with us by Mark Allen Derry, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans. Dr. Derry is also the founder and station manager of WHIVLP Radio in New Orleans. Sprouts is a weekly program produced in collaboration with community radio stations and independent producers around the world. The Sprouts theme music is Torpedoes on Tuesday by Poison Control Center. The program is coordinated and distributed by Pacifica Radio Network. Many thanks to Brian David at Satellite Operation. If you or someone at your station has a radio production that you would like to showcase globally on Sprouts, contact our air traffic controller, Ursula Rudenberg, at ursula at pacifica.org. That's me. I'm Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Radio Network wishing you good health. Thank you for listening and see you again next week on Sprouts.
2: Okay, welcome to a very special edition of Film at 11. I'm DK Ohm, the host, and uh, I'm here with uh, Mona, who is uh, uh, going to help us interview Blitz Bazoule, a uh, filmmaker and musician, and whose film, uh, Burial of uh, Kojo, The Burial of Kojo, is uh, l- kicking off the uh, Cascade African Film Festival. Did I, I don't think I... Close, close. Close. (laughs) The African, the (laughs) Cascade Cascade Festival Festival. of African Film. That's right. So, um, uh, and you are originally from Ghana. Yep. Uh, When did you move to the United States? When I moved after high school. After high school. Yeah. Okay. uh, It's been a while. Is it a a multilingual country? In other words, when you were a kid, were you...